Well, happy 2020. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm sure you did, however you did. I know the three of us, Ted Robinson, Michael Molinari, I'm Yogi Roth. This is Ted and Yogi's Pacto Adventure. We took in our 2020 with the Rose Bowl and Oregon's incredibly dramatic win over Wisconsin. Fellas, it's been a minute. People have been asking me where the next episode of this podcast is coming. This is our final one of the season. So I ask you, how was your holiday and what's happening in your world? Ooh, final one of the year. Come on, guys. Doesn't the world want more? I mean, spring ball. We'll, we'll come back in April <laughs> yeah. for sure. You know, Yogi, you were there watching the Rose Bowl. And there have been 20 years, actually. I was reminiscing with my family, 20 years to the day that I called the Rose Bowl game. Stanford played Wisconsin that day. And 20 years later, I still say it's one of the five best sporting events I've been a part of. And watching on television, as I did, the reaction at the end of the game of the Oregon people. And it just, to me, guys, it hammered home. It, you know, I know the playoff thing has changed the structure. It's inevitable. It changes a lot in college football. But to me, it just can't touch the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl is immune from everything that will transpire around the landscape in college football. When you saw what it meant to Oregon to win that game and how Mario Cristobal voiced it and what Justin Herbert's emotion showed and all the players... It was one of the best moments of the season for me. It was, again, to see that despite the creeping, inevitable, unstoppable intrusion of big money into all athletics, the Rose Bowl just stands alone. And that, to use today's vernacular, the brand of the Rose Bowl is invincible. Can't be touched. Not even the SEC can touch it. <laughs> Michael, what are your thoughts? I like the shout out to tradition because there's very, very little things in this world that still tradition matters over anything else. And it was like echoing what Ted said. It meant a lot to the players on the field. It meant a lot to the people flipping around on the dial because the rating was through the roof. So the Rose Bowl still means something. And uh, I caught uh, I caught the Rose Bowl as uh, the Molinari family finished up their skiing up in Mammoth. So. Couldn't have been a better venue for me to watch the Rose Bowl in Northern California in the Sierras with my family. Wait, wait a minute. You were skiing. I was skiing. What do you mean? Oh, you don't wow. think I could ski? Oh, Come on. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I missed the invite to join. I just, you know, did you, get... <laughs> you know, I didn't. Uh, okay. I... <laughs> okay. I just want to be sure of that. Okay. Yeah. I might have the old address. I'm not sure. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'll tell you what, guys. The Rose Bowl for me was like what was absolutely incredible. Uh, I got to be there during the week and interview the players, both Wisconsin and Oregon, got to be a part of the ideation and the execution of this video that's now over 70,000 views on YouTube, Justin Herbert, when Justin Wilcox, somebody he admired and looked up to as a child, Matt Leiner, who, same, Mark Sanchez, same, also Rose Bowl MVPs, and then, of course, Joey Harrington, all sent direct messages via video to Justin Herbert, basically saying how much you know, he meant to them individually and wishing him good luck in his final game and to enjoy it. And, I, and I've done this before with Mariota, Christian McCaffrey, Bryce Love, guys at the Heisman in the past, uh, but never with, with Justin. And we know Justin's a quiet guy by nature. And to sit next to him and just not say a word and listen to him, finally, I feel like embrace like his impact on the university and what it meant to come back. And what he said to me, blew my mind where he said at the end of the, the interview, he said, man, I'm really going to miss this place. It's sad that my time's coming to an end. And it just, it, it was great because in the era, Ted, you just said the word brands and all these kids are about their brands and about their own selfies and 
name, image, and likeness, et cetera. Like Justin's about the school that he grew up dreaming to play for. So like it just, it, it ended beautifully. And then you add the game and his run and the fourth quarter and all the stuff and how their helmets. I mean, I've never seen anything cooler in my life. Like the way those helmets reflected the sun of Southern California, that it was, it was a brilliant display of why we love college football. If I can jump, jump in on the Justin Herbert thing and give some props to one of our uh, colleagues, I was really um, thrilled. Chris Fowler mentioned near the end of the game uh, that Justin Herbert won the Campbell Trophy. And I think a lot of people who listen to this in our little world here know, but if you don't, it, that's something very personal to me. Uh, Bill was a, per, a very good personal friend of my family's. Um, Yogi got involved a little bit this year, which I was thrilled. Michael has done a great job helping us um, keep this al- the, the, the concept of the award alive on our Pac-12 network telecast. And so I was thrilled that Herbert was recognized on the big stage of the Rose Bowl game for winning it. And I just want to say one other thing. Bill was cringing watching above when that phrase academic Heisman got thrown out. <laughs> and, and I know Chris Fowler, man, well, it's not a knock other than to say that's the shorthand term that it doesn't do justice to what the award is. And that's why Bill would cringe because Bill was adamant that the award had to include someone. It's not for Rudy. It's not for the walk-on that plays two plays in a year. It's for someone that plays. They don't have to be an All-American. It's not about being a first-round draft pick, but just somebody who plays and somebody who excels academically and shines in leadership. And that was the point I thought was great, was that Justin Herbert, who is known as a first-round NFL draft pick and a great quarterback, also was recognized for shining in those other two areas. And I'm really happy he got that recognition. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Like, Michael, I'd be curious your thoughts as uh, we kind of put a ball in the Rose Bowl. But, like, Justin Herbert has had an exemplary career. He's a four-year starter and not at, like, a school that isn't a huge university, at least as of recent times in college football. And it was like everybody's wanted this, like, signature moment from him, which is fair. Everybody wants that in this day and age. But I felt like he finally got it, you know, in winning that game, the way they did it. Even, like, the last three games, we called the Civil War. He ran the ball, I think, three times on his own read. Then in the Pac-12 title game, I think it was seven carries. Then it was, I think, nine in the Rose Bowl. Like, I just feel like the arc of his career finally gets paid off. I'm curious for you as a producer if you felt that over the course of his four years. They were a little injury riddled, at least his his second season in Eugene, and and how you think he'll be remembered in his final in his final stance as a duck. Well, he'll be remembered as one of the greatest winners of all time at that school, which if you asked him, that's probably what he'd want to be remembered for. It's interesting that he he'll never uh, first or second team all Pac twelve, never made first or second team all Pac twelve in his career. With all the uh, the hype around him as a Heisman contender and will he stay or will he go growing up in the shadows of Watson Stadium. But in the end, never got first or second All-Pac-12, but ended in the traditional game that probably the majority of the Oregon fans would want their team to win, the Rose Bowl, and did it by maybe sacrificing his passing and showcasing himself instead the way to win was for him to run, and that's what he did in all of those last three games you just mentioned. Yeah, you know, Ted, I think that's going to be, I mean, we know like he's going to go play in the Senior Bowl now, which is awesome, and I just think he's going to climb when people get to know him, but that, that's going to come up a ton. 
you know, how come Justin Herbert didn't get voted on by the coaches as a first or second team all-conference player? Uh, we talked about it a little bit on a previous podcast. But w- when you look at this guy, and you've been in the NFL longer than any of us on this call, w- what do you think teams will think about or say when they get to meet the guy that you've gotten to meet multiple times? Yeah, I'll be honest, and this is just my sense. I don't think the, the first or second team all Pac-12 stuff will mean a darn thing. I don't think the NFL will care one bit about that. They'll care about his role within the team, the leadership. Again, back some of the things that the Campbell Trophy acknowledges, that's what the NFL will look at. And the fact that Herbert, look, we, we talked a lot in the pot about it this year. You know, he had the beginning of the year, the Auburn game, the Arizona State game. There were a couple of fourth quarters that things didn't go the way you'd want them to go for a player of that experience. The fact that he ended on the biggest stage that he played in the Rose Bowl with a terrific fourth, that's going to mean a lot. And ultimately, it's going to be the throws he makes. And you know this, Yog. You've been on the receiving end of them from guys in your day. I mean, look, you put Tyler Palco in the pros, for God's sakes. <laughs> but, you know, when, when he makes those half dozen throws a game, your jaw drops. You go, well, pro throw, NFL throw, NFL throw. That's ultimately. And the last part about what you brought up, Michael, I'll keep going back to who was voted the player of the century for Pac-8, 10, 12 football. John Elway never played in a bowl game. Okay, mm. didn't, bother, didn't bother the pros one bit. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's great history. Uh, all right, so what do you guys think as we spin it forward here? There's a lot of changes, including at Oregon. Marcus Arroyo goes to become the head coach at UNLV. I talked to him the other day when he got the job. He's so pumped. We're so happy for him. I think it's a perfect... I don't want to call it starter job, but like first head coaching job, like among the non-power fives, if you're a West Coast guy, that, that's a great place, new facility, all the juice that'll have around the league. But they've got to replace that position. Um, it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And as you look at this conference moving forward, Chris Peterson, Jimmy Lake, obviously the transition there that we've talked about. Cal hires a new offensive coordinator. What are your thoughts about big picture Pac-12 and if you had to handicap it right now of momentum, projections, you know, the health of the conference at the top, what do you, what do you see it? Ted, Ted, I'll start with you. All right. I was ready for Michael to jump in there and give me some Syracuse news. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Virginia Tech, Michael, that's all. I uh, no comment. No, and look, guys, don't, we, we, we've talked, I think we talked a lot about this near the end of the season. We, we called the big game and Cal won at Stanford. I was with uh, – I was with actually uh, yesterday, I was with the father of a starting player for Cal who himself played at Stanford, which is one of those interesting things that happen in this world. Um, and he was echoing everything. I was running by our collective views to him, and he was echoing everything. That The internal vibe is great. The players so respect Justin Wilcox. Yeah, they've got the offensive staff change that we know has happened, but Chase Garbers is back. And Michael, because Michael is my muse, uh, reminded me there are only two starting quarterbacks that will return in the North in 2020. Garbers is going to be the most experienced of them. Huge leg up, right? Don't you think huge leg? I mean, even though Evan Weaver is going to be a challenge to, you know, I can't replace him. Whoever has to follow him in that position is going to have a heck of a challenge. Uh, But that to me is what makes the North, which has been a closed shop ever since this conference went to 12, right? It's been Stanford and Oregon pretty much at the top. And now Washington barged its way in a couple of times. But that's it. Well, now suddenly you've got a more wide open north, I think, than we've seen. I agree that Cal's a sleeper, I think. I love the trajectory of Oregon State. I saw they 
just signed Josh, uh, Jonathan Smith for, I think, through 2025, which I think is great. And then since you, you kind of hit the north, the south, obviously, Utah completely reloading. What's the quarterback situation at USC? That's a huge question, obviously, going into next year. And then ASU, I think, is the other team to look at with Jaden Daniels, maybe the most talented you know, I'll, I'll hear about this one, but maybe the most talented quarterback in the South. And uh, so I think I think ASU, ASU, NSC in the South. And I think I like Cal in the North. Yogi? I, I think it's real interesting. You, we talk about the quarterbacks. And the one thing when we look at this conference as a whole, heading into next year, the projected starters will all be guys that will have another year of eligibility. So we could see for the first time in my recollection, we'd have to go back and look, but two years in a row where everybody has the same starting quarterback in the conference. You know, so the next two years, like this thing could get back to be in that quarterback ES conference where it's really talked about, which is really exciting because there's just a stability there. Now look, the portal could throw it all up in arms, right? Like where does KJ Costello land? There's Rumors of, uh, you know, I know quarterback like Jamie Newman who transferred from uh, Wake Forest or entered the portal. Like he's looking at UW, he's looking at Oregon. Like there's a lot that can happen that could flip that thing. I heard, talked to a portal kid the other day uh, about Washington State. So who knows? But I'm excited about that. And I hope it doesn't happen. I hope nobody enters because I think all the rosters in this conference are good enough to win with the quarterbacks that they have on them. But, but I think Oregon right now has separated themselves. Um, they've become the most talented team in terms of how they've competed and won. If you look at just what they did, right? They smoked SC, they beat UW. They've won the games that they needed to in the conference. They won the Rose Bowl as we just got done glowing over and they're crushing it in recruiting. So now what I'm most excited about, I can't wait till we get there for spring ball and do that game as a trio. Uh, that request has been sent in that we can work that one together because wait, now it's- Wait a minute, which one, Yogi? I'm not making sure which one are we talking Oregon. Oregon. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that's the one. That's the the only one. one. That's exactly right. Yeah, but but I say it because now what Mario Cristobal is going to do or have to do is he's going to have to do what Pete did at SC, what Dabo has done at Clemson. Of when you have a competitive roster, now how do you manage it? And Bill Walsh called it a competitive cauldron. I'm most excited to see him manage that. Right. I'll, I'll, I'll screw the number up, but Clemson plays I think an average of like 80 guys a game. They play, right? Some guys are you know, the front line of kickoff return, but they get four snaps a game, and some guys are Trevor Lawrence. But it creates this really whole healthy culture. And that's what I'm most excited about, and that's their opportunity because they've got the brand that they can go. Yeah. Um, and and that, they're the lead dog. You know, Chase Garbers and our, our buddy Roxy Bernstein sent me the text of like, hey, Cal's national champions. They're 7-0 and when their quarterback finishes a game, you know, which was tongue-in-cheek and funny. Uh, I still think there's a, still a notch for them. UW will be fun with Jimmy Lake, but I look at this now as it's Oregon's conference, uh, and they're they're holding the flag, and and they might hold it for the next couple of years if this thing's managed as well as, you know, I, I hope that it is because I, I do think they got an opportunity to do some good things. Well, I hope we do get to do the Jackalope Spring game. That would be a lot of fun. But uh, <laughs> I'm sitting here. First of all, Michael Molinari is cringing because he knows Yogi's sitting there. Yogi was a player. So he talks about 80 guys playing in a game and you have glee in your voice. And I'm a friend. Of yours. <laughs> That's so true. Michael knows that. You know that. Here's the wild card I was just thinking about, you know, when you were talking about that and the portal. And I think 
you know, despite, and we've talked about this, there, there are people who jumped into the portal maybe too soon, or at least what we might consider too soon, but it's reality. It ain't going to change. This is the where college sports is going. So we don't know yet where some people will land. Here's a fascinating wild card to me, and I don't know, if, Yogi, if you know anything more about K.J. Costello. And what a crazy could it be that K.J. Costello lands in another conference school? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've been told a bunch of things about him and schools within our conference, and a lot of them desiring his abilities. I can't confirm if any of those are true, so I'm not going to say which schools they are. Um, but you can imagine, like, who's replacing a starting quarterback is where, obviously, he would go. Uh, but he's also weighing his options, I know, um, do I just go to the NFL, right? And Kyle Allen, to me, is the comp. Kyle Allen and him, similar big-time recruits. Kyle Allen went to Texas A&M, then to Houston. They had a coaching change, and he was going to – I think he was on his way to, like, a Mac school and was just like, you know what, let me just go to the league and be a seventh-round pick or free agent or whatever he ended up becoming. And, and I could see a world like that for KJ of saying, you know what, I've kind of exhausted the portal. Let me see what's going on. Because the reality is you got two more weeks to decide. School has begun at a lot of institutions, and the way that the rule works is that you have 10 days, five academic calendar, or 10 academic calendar days, which is basically two weeks, to transfer in and not be, you know, too late to get into the academic curriculum, um, at least for the semester schools. Um, you could always do the quarter thing and come on in midway through spring ball, but I'd imagine he'll make a decision before then. So that, that's what I'm told by people that have connected with him is still kind of weighing the options, but I mean, what, what an interesting world, right? Like what if he went to a school in the PAC 12, like it'd be kind of entertaining. It'd be fun. Um, so I don't know. I, I hope he does whatever he kind of feels best. Cause sure. I think and both of them have good arguments. And that's a great explanation. I didn't realize that. So there is a, there is a, he can't wait till March, let's say to make a decision. He, he could at like Oregon state, UCLA, any quarter school he could, cause then he could enroll then. Um, but that's, I, what Min, that's what Minshew did, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Minshew was he, – he was after that because I think Wazoo's semester, he came in May. I want to say it was like May 22nd or something like that. So you, you could wait, but I think knowing KJ like we do, he'd want to get there, get the playbook, get around his – and win the job, you know, versus even evaluate post-spring ball. Like I think there's a world where that it may be beneficial – uh, but I bet there's only a very few schools that are like come out of spring ball saying, dude, yeah, we need a free agent quarterback. KJ, come in and save the day. Is that even the healthiest of environments that you want to enter into? Right. I don't know. I don't know. All right. So uh, let's, let's keep it moving because there, there's some unique movement, I think, that's gone on in this conference. Uh, I look at one of the biggest moves is Arizona. They bring in Paul Rhodes as a defensive coordinator. I say that because I have a lean towards Paul. He coached me at Pitt. Uh, head coach at Iowa State, D coordinator, interim head coach at Arkansas, recently at UCLA. He went there, and he went there right after signing day. And I think that's interesting. Um, on one hand, it's like super honorable of like let schools recruit their guys and sign them. Um, on the other hand, like Arizona fans were probably like, why didn't he come earlier? Maybe we would have got a DB that didn't sign with us or a defensive player. But now he goes there. And I look at that place, and it's firmly like his program. You look at Arizona State, you know, up the road. It's firmly Herm's program now when you think of the coaching changes, right? Like, he, he had a couple coordinator changes before he even coached a game. And now Rob Likens is out. Um, obviously, Danny Gonzalez becomes a head coach at his alma mater and in his Zach Hill and Tony White. Like, I think there's some – you look at those things, let alone even Washington. They're going to name an offensive coordinator. 
Bush Hamden is out. We don't know what Washington State's going to do is D.C. We talked about Oregon and their offensive coordinator situation. Cal hired one um, in Bill Musgrave. So what, what jumps out to you guys, Ted, I'll start with you, around some of the changes around specific sides of the ball? And maybe which team do you see the opportunity for the greatest growth? Well, it's great, Yogi. I'm glad you teed that up because that was where I was going to go. It was to me, you know, we've talked about some of the positives and upsides. And now the reality is there are going to be some, some programs that have big questions. And I think Arizona's, the Arizonas are, to me, the most fascinating questions heading to 2020 because both programs are into year three. Year three for Herm, year three for Kevin Sumlin. That's where you always expect by year three, as we saw with Coach Pete at Washington, right? Year three, things have kicked in, and it's it's definitely going the right way for Justin Wilcox at Cal, same thing. So Michael and I, you know, Michael, you can chime in here. We were just in Tucson over the weekend, and I got to tell you, the vibe's not not great right now around football there. Uh, they just lost a big recruit to Colorado, you know, yeah. a, a recruit with Arizona ties, family ties, significant ties. And, you know, there, there's a lot of question right there uh, right now what, you know, what direction they're going to go in. So I think to me, year three for Arizona Wildcat football is massive. Year three for Arizona State would be, okay, you're losing two significant offensive game-changing players in Ayuk and Benjamin. You have your quarterback coming back with a year under his belt. You know, can you have enough around him to make that next step to go from a seven to eight win team to, you know, and these are big steps, as we all understand, to go from seven, eight to nine, ten wins and potentially contend. That, those are bigger steps. But that's what you probably want to see, right? I mean, that's what Herm's there for. That's what you want to see in year three. So I, I to me, that's where the first to me, I look at, okay, wh what questions do I want to see answered in 2020? It's the two Arizona schools. To jump on the Tucson, I think there's there's a mix of disappointment and almost desperation that you felt a little bit if football came up. Um, so I hope I hope that they can get it turned around on the defensive side because I think that's really where uh, they've massively struggled the last couple of years. Um, and as far as the newest... The newest position that I think at least who's going to have the most pressure might be whoever decides to take the Washington offensive coordinator job. I just think with Coach Pete moving on, there's going to be a microscope on that program for a few years at least. And I just think that's they've really struggled or underperformed, I would say, offensively, at least last year and probably started the year before. And I think that's going to be a, a, a very uh, high pressure high-focused position, whoever decides to take that job. Yeah, you know, Jason Harris is the defensive end that you guys were referring to, and uh, he's awesome. I mean, he's a big-time player. His brother plays uh, at Arizona, I believe. His, his dad played at Arizona. Um, his mom played hoops at Arizona. And you know how that goes. Like, those things just kind of take on a life of their own. Um, but what a get when you look at the buffs. I'll get to that in a minute. But I think you're right on year three, like – and the year three thing, I think, is fun to bounce around because what did Baylor do in year three, right? Like Matt Rule just took a job in the NFL. So, 40, like sixty-three million dollars worth, right? Or something. That's what year <laughs> three did for Matt Rule. That's right. That's right. So I, I think that like it's there's worlds where we can say, well, UCLA, for instance, you're in the hotbed of Los Angeles. You should turn around like Baylor did in year three, but the program um, 
I don't know the details of Baylor. I know culturally that place was as bad as you could ever imagine, right? Obviously, all the stuff that happened under Art Bryles and that rule flipped that thing. Uh, so I think you're right. Like, I think year three is a litmus. I don't know if you have to go 11 and one or 11 and two or whatever they finished. Um, but I, I think that's fair. You know, for you have Arizona, to believe, don't you, Yogi? That's, that's right. where I'm going with it. You, by year three, you have to think, okay, this is the right staff, the right, we're in the right direction. Yeah. Well, I've always felt that coaches, like, right, wrong, and different, five years is the number I always say that, like, that's kind of reality, right? There, there's some guys that stay, for, like David Shaw or Kyle Whittingham. But it's like five to seven years if you have a great success. Like Chris Peterson, like, is he there six years, I think? You know, when you look at it, maybe seven years. You know, so five years is kind of be in that window. So you're right, at year three, you're re-upping your deal, right? Jonathan Smith just did his, as Michael referenced off the top. Um, Justin Wilcox did last year heading into year three, if you go back to that. So I think there's there's that optimism element. And in recruiting, it, it is a big deal um, because recruiting, I just did early signing period. You know, I'm going to do the late signing period now in a month. And I promise you that coaches right now, they're allowed to be on the road. I've talked to a couple. They're not talking to guys that are going to sign in February. They're done with that. They're going to visit guys that will sign next December. Yeah. So there, there is a real thing. USC felt that more than anybody in the country. And, and that's, to me, the, the final question mark that I have. We look at some of the changes that have happened. The Trojans, um, they are getting crushed for their class. And from a rating standpoint, that's fair. But the same people that crushed them for the class were saying that Clay was going to be gone the whole year. Like, you just can't have it both ways, in my opinion. And they fought that narrative. I mean, they fought a narrative where he was reportedly gone. You know, so now they got to hire a special teams coordinator. Not that big of a deal. They're still going to sign the top kicker. And they may already have one of the tops in the country. Um, but they got to make a defensive coordinator decision. And I hope by the time you listen to this podcast, that's already done. Um, I know they're in the mix for a bunch of guys that have NFL ties and they're talking to a variety of really talented people. But I, I think for them, that's going to be my biggest area of opportunity when you head into the spring, into the season. Because I would pick them I, – I, I, I might pick them to win the South. Like part of me wants to go ASU because of everything they're returning. I love the coordinator hires that they made, one with from, one from within um, – in, uh, in their defense coordinator, Tony White, and one from outside, and Zach Hill from Boise State. You reference the players that they have. We, we know how many young guys they played. Uh, but SC's still loaded. Like, their skill players are going to be better than everybody's. Um, their defensive line, Jay Tefele, he's a real dude. Mar like, their, their guys, their C Drake Jackson, their linebacking core, they only lose two players, really, on the entire team. You could argue three, maybe, if you want to throw an offensive lineman into the mix there. But they weren't dominant on the, in that area. So that, for me, is going to be something that is clearly under a microscope. And, oh, by the way, this conference, their non-conference games next year are insane. You look at Washington, Oregon, and USC, and USC's is against Bama to kick it off. Like, there's been probably no greater weight on Clay Helton's shoulder than what will be that game to kick off the season. Because he could shut everybody up with a win against Alabama, or it can just continue to pile on in my eyes. All right. So Yogi, how will USC function if they can't get their quarterback, whoever, whether it's Slovis or Daniels next year through a game without getting hurt? And how many games did Slovis get knocked out of this year for God's sakes? Yeah. Yeah. It's a real, it's a real concern. And you know, you, you look at historically, if we just look at Leach's offense, right? Washington State, you know, guys have gotten 
rocked, you know, right? Like Luke Falk, Connor Holiday, or you know, you can go down the list. Um, you know, there's an element to that, but I, I do think, and I've talked to Graham Harrell about it, where he's different is that he's a, he's always calling a game, not always just trying to protect the quarterback, but from a getting hit standpoint, but also like, hey, run the football more, like don't let people just tee off on him. Uh, but you're right, like that's going to be huge. Nobody thought that JT Daniels would be injured in the first half of the first game of the year, and in comes a kid who's, you know, not heralded as a recruit, and nobody expected to play for at least two years, you know, in that program, if ever. You know, remember they had the number one quarterback in the country committed for almost a full calendar year prior to Keaton Slovis becoming the freshman player of the year in the Pac-12. So, yeah, you're right. They got They got to be healthy. I mean, everybody goes through injuries, but I do think that what Stanford went through last year and even this year and what USC went through this year. We've seen a lot of football, but I, I haven't seen stuff like that. I haven't seen five tailbacks. I haven't seen three starting quarterbacks. I haven't seen like eight DBs. Like just haven't seen that. Um, so you're right. I mean, it's a big area. I'm curious, what do they do soft tissue wise in terms of their offseason training? Like how, what do they adjust? We'll ask those questions when we get there for spring ball. But you know, we know Clay, man. He's as good of a guy as there is. He'll do everything he can to you know, leave the place better than the way the season ended and set him up for the best success heading into spring. And, and I believe in him and what they're doing. I know I'm on a relative island with that, but I, I'd love to see them go do their thing next year. Yeah. All right, so Michael, because Michael Molinari, Yogi, as you know, is uh, joins our colleague Bill Walton and enjoying being high in the Rockies. Uh, <laughs> I can help with soft tissue. Yeah, well, I mean, Colorado, this has been fascinating to see when Mel, Mel Tucker lands the tremendous transfer. And these are the names that Yogi's up to speed on the names. I just know they got the tremendous transfer from Alabama, D. Lyman. Now this recruit, uh, Harris, out of Tucson, who was, you know, family roots are all connected to Arizona. All of a sudden, Colorado sneaking could be like – and Yogi made a great point that in year three, you always want to make that decision. Oregon State saw it in year two, right? They saw with Jonathan Smith in year two that they were in the right place. They extend him. Could Colorado have the same feeling with Mel Tucker next year? Can I say something about Mel Tucker before Yogi breaks yes. it down? No, no, you do. We, yeah. Oh, we had, as most people know, we get the opportunity to sit with coaches on Fridays or talk with them on the phone during the week. And in Mel Tucker's personality and enthusiasm and straightforwardness if mel tucker walked into anyone's living room and said i want your son to come play for my team i i'd have a really hard time believing most people would would say no uh, it just that's the feeling i get so the fact that colorado's recruiting has taken off is zero surprise to me just on a personal level of interacting with mel tucker so i i think he's one of the best pickups for this conference in a while and I think he's going to be there a long time and and have a lot of success. And I, I think uh, I think their team, because they're going to get physical and tough, kind of like Oregon kind of has gone that way. I think that might be the next the next key to success within this conference is how physical and tough can you be? And I think Mel Tucker, Colorado has definitely emphasized that. And I think Oregon with Mario has emphasized that. So um I expect them to be, they're probably a year away, I would think, but we shall see. Yeah, no, they're, he came correct. You know, like when you look at his class, it was awesome. You know, uh, Antonio Alfano is who Ted referenced. He's former number one prospect in the country. Like not just 
a good player from the state. I mean, this is a beast. He had two or three sacks in Alabama's spring game. Right? He's out of the state of New Jersey, representing the East Coast for us out here. Uh, but he's real. Like, you look at Kayvon Thibodeau, Drake Jackson last year, this guy, same conversation. And what didn't they have last year? No offense to those players. They had no front seven. You know, they just struggled there. And they just got better immediately from the junior colleges where they got just absolute beasts, transfers, or top guys in high school. And what they did is they went to a state that they don't really compete against a lot of schools in this conference against, which is the state of Texas. Right When Todd Graham was at ASU, Texas was a thing for that school. Clearly, they pivoted to California, specifically Southern California, which is another conversation in and of itself for how many guys they're taking from the two schools here in L.A. But what he's done is, is fascinating. They got bigger. They've gotten stronger. They've gotten more talented. They got more competitive. And they did it with a balance of schools that are in the state of Texas, schools that Mel knew, like the state of Georgia, as well as Pac-12 footprint schools. And I just think, you know, he's not wavering on his belief. There's a great piece about him last week where he was like, look, I get it that, you know, there are 5'11 wide receivers, and I'm paraphrasing here, that look like me, and one out of a 1,000 are Wes Welker. You can't build your roster on that. So they're, like, very hard and fast on their sizes and their dimensions. This team's going to look different than they have in the past. They're going to look different than teams in this conference at every position, and that's just the way he's he's approaching it, you know. NFL evaluator, NFL projections, all the stuff that a lot of schools do. But from a recruiting standpoint, man, you can feel this guy. I gave him a B plus in their class. I give him an A minus now with the get that they had late, who announced in the All Star game, the guy we just referenced, Harris. So um, they'll be fun to watch. They'll be pending who plays quarterback. Remember, they had two young backs and they added another one. They'll be like Utah in terms of. You know, Utah a couple of years ago, nobody was going to want to play them, right? They're not the team you're going to get a win against. They're the team you're going to have to strap it up against, and you're going to get hit in the face. And if you're not ready for it, look out. And they're a team that could go in. You know, they could have won eight this year. I would expect next year, I haven't kind of gone through their schedule and how games laid out or laid out because that hasn't been released yet. But on the hoof, pending Blake Stenstrom's development, if he's the guy, you know, they did bring in Brandon Lewis, a really talented dual-threat quarterback who's a mid-year enrollee out of Texas. Based on who gets that job and how they operate the offense, this is, a at worst, to me, they should be bowling next year. That's a heck of a statement. That would be, be wonderful for Colorado. Obviously, guys, it would be great for a conference to have that. So that leads me into who's, who's poised for both you guys to make the biggest leap next year? And it could be the leap, like, like I was suggesting, it could be the leap from an Arizona State seven wins to ten, or it could be a leap from you know, in Arizona or somebody that's really scuffled to become a, at least a legitimate contender. I think Oregon State continues their upward trend. I just feel Jonathan Smith's got them going in the right direction. Hamaka Rashid just announced he's coming back, so that defense uh, gets a big boost there. And it's hard to quantify what that would mean. Last year, this season, it was competing in almost every game, which they hadn't done in probably the last two or three years. It just wasn't even close. And now, Winning more of those games, I think, would be the biggest jump in this conference of Oregon State. Can go into every game thinking they can win and win some of them and continue to win some of them. I think that's going to be, I think that'll be the biggest leap in this conference next year. Yeah, I think that's a, this is a fun, this is really fun because you look at like the math, right? Like if Cal wins eight games again next year, I think that's a heck of a season, 
right? Like Washington, can they get from eight to 10, eight to 11, three games? Yeah, they could. That's a nice numbers wise leap. But like is Oregon leaping into the CFP, it'd be one more win potentially than where they are right now. So I think like if you look at it math wise, I'd probably go with like UCLA or Stanford, right? Like can they get to seven wins? You know, it'd be fun. I'd love to see that. Can USC get to 11 wins? Like the three win margin is something that I think is consistent for a couple teams. But from a feel, from a vibe, from the program trajectory, um, I think the greatest leap would be USC because of how buried they are, you know, with their recruiting class, with the way they lost to Iowa, which was disappointing, you know, with the quarterback being knocked out of the game. You just didn't get to see him really compete because they looked nice for a quarter and a half or so. Uh, they could flip their whole narrative. And it starts with the first game. And I don't think there'll be a greater leap in the country. I mean, imagine Clay Helton beating Nick Saban to kick off the season. <laughs> I mean, I, the and, band, and you better get that bandwagon cleared off for that, Yogi. Well, think about it. If, as of now, right, as of now, Alabama is going to have to replace coaches, right? As of today, I talked to people, we'll see if this is even true, but at least the rumor mill, and I'm cool going there, Sark to Mississippi State. How about that? I was going to bring that one up. I saw yeah. that as well. Yeah, so, and I've talked to some people that are like, you know, basically what's happening now is they're feeling it out to see and vetting each other out to the nth degree. We'll see what happens, right? If he wants to go, there's no formal offer been uh, to, given Al- to anybody. Right. But Al- Alabama survived before Sarkeesian. They'll survive after him. I agree. Um, but will they survive with Mac Jones? Will they survive with Bryce Young? Like, I, I just think there's t- – to say that SC is going to get rolled um, would, I don't think, be accurate. To say they can handle Alabama for four quarters, that's a fair statement because they haven't proven to do that. Can they handle a physical, you know, badass team from out of this conference for four quarters? They haven't proved it. They didn't prove it against Ohio State. Last time they did it was the Rose Bowl with Sam Darnold. So I think those are all fair, but I, I do think they've got the greatest opportunity. I don't know if I think they'll do it, but to answer the question, I think they've got the greatest chance for the, for the greatest leap. If, if they do do it, I will not be able to walk down the Manhattan Beach Strand without seeing SC hats, <laughs> T-shirts, jerseys. They'll just come out of the woodwork. And I don't know if Scott Barkey's head will be able to get in the truck the next week. <laughs> yeah, don't schedule our game the same time as that one if you want him to like, participate in the broadcast. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to probably uh, take, you know, buy the longest shot uh, ticket at the track here. But right now I'm going to tell you early, and again, we still have, as we've been discussing, transfer portals to settle, all this other stuff. But as we sit here in the first week of January, I'm going to say UCLA. Uh, for my biggest jump, and again, that jump could be from what they won four last year, could be to seven, but just something to be a team where every week they go on the field with a chance to win the game. And I'm looking next year, their schedule, and we know how tough UCLA's schedule was this past year. Their non-con, New Mexico State home at Hawaii. Now, Rolovich had a pretty good year this year. He's still there, right, Yogi? He is. the heck has Rolovich not gotten a better job? Wait, he's waiting to enter the Pac-12 conference. I hope. I don't know that, but I'd love to see him in our conference. Yeah. All right. And then at San Diego State, which is going to be a tough game. Uh, so those are their three non-cons, but that's not as daunting as it was this past year with Oklahoma and Cincinnati. In conference, UCLA next year, they miss Oregon and Washington. Those are the two misses. They get USC and Utah at home. So in terms of lining things up schedule-wise, 
to give them the best possible chance. That's about as friendly a schedule as you could ask. So I combine those two things with a with a quarterback that's going to be now back uh, playing for his third year in Chip Kelly's scheme. I'm going to give them my my January dark horse play biggest jump. Yeah, and I'm just to add to that by far, and I mean far, their best recruiting class, and guys that'll play today, right? John Humphrey, one of the top corners in the West, on the West Coast. He's going to go in there and replace Darnay Holmes, right? Linebackers are going to go in and play right now. Like, they, they got better at major positions of need. I mean, Carl Jones, if you remember last year, you know, he was a running back in high school, came in as a safety, ended up playing inside linebacker, inside linebacker in major college football. It just shouldn't happen, you know? Like, they... They they look the part now. Uh, I'm I'm really excited. I'm with you on that. And they're going to add some more players in February, and that was an absolute overhaul too. And I think as we talk year three, like it'd be fun to study some rosters and maybe I'll do it in the off season of like what was Baylor's roster like when they turned that thing around and went to an 11 win team and you know a major bowl game versus Chip. You know, I mean it was a complete roster overhaul. Guys yeah. leaving, going to the portal, and the NCAA only allow you to sign 25 a year. So you could have 40 available scholarships. You can't sign 40 guys. It's a terrible rule, in my opinion. Um, but that's the rule that that exists, right? They don't want people to kind of load up in that way. And there's a bunch of reasons we get into if we want to, uh, of why your that was school, created. Your school. Yeah. Hey, you don't want to oversign. Okay, so here comes the dinosaur moment, everybody. Pause for a second. When, when I was a kid... <laughs> And Pitt signed this great running back named Tony Dorsett, who's one of the two or three great, to this day, one of the two or three greatest college football players I ever saw. Uh, they gave quote-unquote scholarships, air quote scholarships, to like 28 of his homies. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Johnny Majors. And that's how they got Tony Dorsett to come from nearby Aliquippa to Pitt. And, you know, none of them ever played, obviously, but they had a class with like 90 scholarship guys in it. That's why the rule got put in. The rule, the original rule got put in for that. Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, all right. I got a question for you guys. Um, as we head into the offseason, which program and granted, there's still changes. We kind of ran down the laundry list of changes that are pending to happen. Um, also, some that, you know, are good changes like Morgan Scally got a longer contract. Right, to remain as a defensive coordinator at Utah. Who do you think, or which program is the healthiest? Not physically, but like just the health of when you walk into the building, you're like culture, embodiment of the same message, uh, team that you feel like, wow, man, th this, thing is, this thing is as strong as it's been in a long time. Do, do you have somebody that you choose there? Michael, go ahead. I'd have to say Oregon. I mean, Mario Cristobal is a leader. I remember probably three years ago, and for whatever reason, uh, we ended up speaking to him. We weren't short. They didn't really have an offensive coordinator at the time, but they said, we're going to uh, let's bring in Coach Cristobal to talk to you guys. He is the O-line coach. And it's the first time I had spoken with him, and I know he'd already coached as a head coach elsewhere. But when I walked out of that room, I said, this guy is a leader. And that's what you felt like. We, we had a chance to talk to him before the uh, Civil War. He has a plan. Everybody buys in. Everybody's on the same page. The answer to that question, at least from what I've seen, is Oregon. Not to, not to say there's a lot of there are obviously a lot of great leaders in this conference, but the one that stands out to me is the Oregon program. I'm having a hard time circling one. 
it's a good problem. Say, I want to say one because I'm going to jump on Molinari's back in the humanity moment. But I would say right off the top, very quickly to Stanford, despite the fact this was their first down year in over a decade, the Stanford football program is in, I mean, just the internal strength of that program has been outstanding. And the second one is the obvious, I think, Utah. And that's the, the, the question, I guess, the, the only question is to the last two games of their season that were you know, really disappointing. You know, how does that impact? Does that impact? Because internally, that is the other program to me that you walk in there, they know exactly what they're doing, why they're doing it, and they do it properly. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I think it's it's kind of fun. Like, you know, we didn't prepare that question for the listeners, but it's kind of came to me to ask. And you think about it, you go down the list of teams like Arizona State is healthy, man. Colorado, that's optimism. Like they're rolling. You reference Utah. I think Washington and Jimmy Lake is as good of a transition as you could have. Um, Oregon, Oregon State, Cal, Stanford, like there's not, there, there's no dysfunction, you know, that in this conference where you say, man, that program is in trouble. Like, I think even with the hiring of Paul Rhodes is a great thing. You know, they're going to go with all of someone's guys now for the team that was, you know, struggled the most last year in Arizona in this conference. Um, if I had to get off the fence, I think I'd go to the consistency. Um, and, and I'd go to, I'd probably go to Utah just because they've done it for so long. Um, Stanford would be what I'd want to go next. I think, like, I don't think they're going to win the conference next year, but I think they're going to be much improved. When you look at the players they have returning that are going to get healthy. Um, of course, what Davis can do, Davis Mills, their quarterback at times. Uh, and then the up-and-coming cultures, right, which is the Colorados, the Oregons, the Oregon States. But the entrenched ones, to me, is kind of where I lean on that. And I'm probably most intrigued. You know, I want to get to Utah in spring. And this, what an opportunity they had, right? They were going to the CFP. I mean, at least had a great case if they went out and won. And they didn't. And it, it, I don't know what it did to you guys, but I was watching their bowl game. And, like, my soul was a crush a little bit. Amen. I was like, man, like, what's the truth of this team? Like, that, that, so, so, guys, wait, that's where my question was. You know, what did those last, the last two games? It was the championship game and then the bowl game. Because it, it – it wasn't just losing, but it was Utah. This was the team that was dominant defensively, and they their defense was dominated. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Texas game, I, I think that we have to be truth-tellers. Like, part of it is, like, Julian Blackman and Jalen Johnson didn't play. Like, I get that, um, for sure, in the back end. They're two of their best players in the whole program. But the line of scrimmage, I was surprised about in the last two games, you know, where we thought that, they would dominate, right? I mean, guys, they weren't just, when we talked about this, they weren't just the best rush defense in this conference. From 1996, heading into the Pac-12 title game, they averaged, I think, the fifth least amount of yards per game running the football. Among any team in major college football, they were at 56 yards per game, right? Like, this was a historic defense, or so we thought. And that's where I was like, oh, no, were we wrong? I, 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 don't, I trust my eyes. I trust what we saw. But to be fair... When you look at who they played, it, it is fair to say, like, look who they played, you know, in terms of styles of teams and their non-conference schedule. And then what they did when they saw the most physical teams, at least on their schedule, which was Oregon in the title game. And then I think we'd have to say what Texas did to them would put them in that category as well. So I'm, like, really intrigued for the bounce back. The culture is strong enough where they will, but they got to replace guys that we'll be talking about at the end of April and early May in the NFL and getting drafted. So I don't, I don't know, Ted, I, I don't think I have an answer of like what happened. I, th yeah. I think I'm still perplexed of, Holy crap. Like what? 
what, what yeah. am I watching right now? And what I'm hoping is that, and, and I'm looking right here, it's going to take another couple of years, but for Utah to be able to follow the lead of other teams in the conference and have a little bit better non-con. I mean, they're going to keep playing BYU. They're going to play them again this coming year, but the other games are Montana State and Wyoming. And that isn't going to help the national perception, which we all saw firsthand, the fight. The, you know, the Pac-12 has enough trouble nationally. Utah really fought that at the end of the season when the CFP conversation came up. So they'll, you know, down the line, I see they have Florida lined up for a couple of games, Arkansas, Houston. That's what I hope Mark Harlan and company can do that more. They're going to need to play one or two of those a year, I think, to, you know, as this continues into the 2020s now to keep their profile going. And the other thing I'll say, guys, maybe maybe I slash we are at fault because the champ in the championship game in Santa Clara, that first Utah drive, I think we talked about this in the pod after the game, short two straight short yardage plays, and Utah just turns and gives the ball to Zach Moss and Oregon stuffs him both times. And that, to me, was the game. That was it. And so maybe maybe we didn't sell Oregon's defense strongly enough, right? Because they won that fight. They won that fight, and that was that was reflective of what happened in the game. Oregon won the line of scrimmage, which I'm guessing neither none of the three of us would have thought was going to happen beforehand. Well, yeah, and they did in the Rose Bowl. You know, think about Jonathan Taylor. He didn't go for over 100, I believe. You know, and it, that defensive front was awesome. They got their their yards on the perimeter. You know, with the end arounds and fly sweeps and outside zone runs. So yeah, you're right. We didn't. You know, we didn't give Oregon the love defensively that they've earned and you know think about them they lose Troy Dye that's about it you know like this thing this thing is loaded next year for for the Ducks um okay uh before we get to Michael's humanity moment I want to talk about the college football championship game with you guys um I don't think that it's fair to say what I'm gonna say but I'm gonna say it anyway that when you look at the two teams playing in LSU and Clemson clearly they're they're awesome but they also played eight conference games. Like, there, there is something to that, you know? And granted, they played impressive non-con schedules, right? Which is why, like, they're, they're more than worthy to be in the situation they're in. But I'd love, as we put a bow on it, like, your, your two takes on, like, the state of college football at the highest of levels. Right? We've got a college football playoff that's dominating the talk from August until now, which is a detriment, in my opinion, at least, to the rest of the game. Uh, but just curious, you know, you're you're you know, you're the commissioner of college football. What's your overarching view as we head into the final game? And then I'd love you to pick the game, what you think, and then we'll get to Michael's humanity moment. Okay. So let me just say this. LSU this year, eight conference games, as you said, Yoke, four non con games at Texas, which they won in week two. Legit, no questions asked. The other three were Georgia Southern, Northwestern State, and Utah State. All in Baton Rouge. So mm-hmm. that, that to me is where that's the crux of the matter is that, and I, it's funny, I heard a, I forget who did it. I just listened to an interview. Jim Delaney, who's just stepped down as the big 10 commissioner, did a great interview on this topic. And he was very intelligent in his explanation of where college football is now and how these collisions of eight games versus nine games, you know, how important is it? Uh, to play non-con games, how important is margin of victory? And there have been, he acknowledged it's been basically conflicting or or maybe more uh, wavering 
instructions given to the committee as to what to emphasize. And that's where there's likely going to be change. And it may not happen until this whatever year this contract expires. But there's going to be change in the playoff system because of that. You can't have eight and nine, you know, the, the Pac-12, UCLA playing nine conference games, then playing the non-con they did, Oklahoma, Cincinnati, and San Diego State. And you're yeah. going to compare that against that joke, the joke that Alabama plays every year. You can't do it. And especially the other thing to me, guys, is is that the Pac is 12. And as we referenced already, UCLA doesn't play Oregon and Washington next year. Well, that's, that's an oddity in the Pac. That's a regular occurrence in the Big Ten and the SEC that are now these massive conferences, right? Where how many, even within the conference, Alabama only plays one or two of the top teams every year. Uh, you know, it's, it's even within the Big Ten, it's not fair. The Big Ten is so tilted to that one division where Michigan, Michigan State, Penn State, and Ohio State have to bash each other's brains in every year. And on the other side, you know, the Illinois and the Iowas and the Minnesota's laugh. They yawn. And Minnesota took advantage of that this year, right? They only had to play a couple of those teams. So that, to me, is where, if we're going to have a playoff, which I think is is never going to change, there needs to be some better level field equity in terms of how the conference is scheduled and then how they're judged against each other. And I, I thought, last one, Michael, I'll hand it to you, I thought Delaney was was absolutely right. He said, when we, when we uh, first agreed to this playoff you know you don't sit there and think about the extreme circumstance of okay a conference being left out three out of four years like the Pac-12 and you know everybody thinks that won't happen to us well it's happened to us and as a result there will be a change and it will go to eight and the five majors will be in and the power of the whatever group of five will get at least one spot and then you'll have the spots for the second place teams and conferences that, you know, the Wisconsin this year, the Utah this year that had outstanding years and lost their conference championship game. That will eventually happen. I don't think it's eight versus nine. I think eight is the number and it needs to be the playoff needs to be eight. And that takes care of a lot of problems that reduces the margin of error in the selection committee, which I think needs to be done then that takes away the the problem the comparison problem becomes a lot less when you have eight and i don't i think the simple solution is to get rid of the conference championship games and make it eight and you know the other thing i think we i think we have to say if oregon takes care of business down in tempe then they're in the playoff and we're not having this discussion so i think that's what my friends who or SEC fans or Big Ten fans would say to me. Um, and I think they have a reasonable argument there. So, unfortunately, we have uh, our teams have fed on each other the last few years, and that's why the Pac-12 has been, has been out. And it's because we have such – we have parity and we have balance. And, unfortunately, parity and balance is not what gets you in the playoff these days. Yeah, I think it's – you look at – you know, very rarely do we see two teams that have gone undefeated, you know, like, like it got right. Right. So there's a lot of arguments out there now, like, well, the system's right. At the end of the day, you got your two best teams. I think those arguments are fair. And when you look at the finality of it, yeah, Clemson, LSU, two best teams in the country. It's awesome. Whether it was the computers that picked it back in the day or the playoff that got it too, great. But the unintended consequences that you referenced, Ted, of what, this has done to the game outside of the Rose Bowl. No one cares. 
you know, like about what teams are doing, unless you're taking a run at the playoff, right? What's the most discussed topic? It's three, four, five, six once the end of October comes and the first playoff ranking comes. So I think overall, when I, you know, put on my, you know, if you got to be the president of college football, um, I'd love to just see some uniformity um, on a bunch of levels, right? Whether it's uh, uh, scholarship uh, in terms of the rules where guys can and can't transfer in, right? If they do, if they get in trouble off the field, whether it's conference games versus non-conference games, whether it is schedules when you're looking at night road games and then a night game the next week. Like, I, I just think that the style of play is so different among the five power fives, let alone the other teams in this country, that you have to have something that's uniform. And right now we don't, other than, you know, the basic rules of the game. Right Next year, it'll change, I believe, where there'll be one officiating group overseeing all of college football, which is awesome. Like, that's how it should be. So I think the more and more we get to that, so you can have holistic opinions. Like, I'll be honest, one of my favorite takeaways from the Bulls was listening to other fans light up other conference officials. I just kind of enjoyed <laughs> it, right? Like, and I, I would imagine most Pac-12 people did, right? And, and you think, because you live in your fishbowl of, man, it's just us, it's just our world, but everybody does. So I think, are there areas where we can break the barriers down and break these walls down? And have some uniformity. You know, like I loved what we did this a couple of years ago as a conference. And then the deal ended up, uh, for whatever reason, not happening. But it was like Big Ten, Pac-12 challenge. And it was going to be home and away series within the conferences. I would love to see more of that. If you're going to have to have two meaningful non-conference games, let's have alignments from our conferences. So we can kind of know and judge and base things upon that versus, you know, an opinion because the game was on late and you just saw the box score. Or an opinion because everybody's so excited about one individual performance. I can't tell you how many coaches I've talked to after players have had record-breaking performances that say, you know what, he actually didn't grade out that well. You know, like, but what's the narrative? And in, in the world we're in, which is narrative-based, based on social media for the most part, or a couple voices in major college football, um, we need more uniformity to become more accurate. And I think save the game and protect the the longevity of, of the game that we love. So, All right, Yogi, I think that's great. So let me throw this ball to you. And Michael, you take this first with your background as his premier television producer in charge of billion-dollar budgets. Um, instead of – because because I, I don't think there's any chance in God's green earth the conference championship games are going to go away. There's too much money involved. But why don't we take the curly Q cheese fry bowl and – you know, my longtime favorite, the Weed Whacker Bowl. Weed Whacker Bowl. <laughs> Why don't we take all of those meaningless games, given the era we're in, that, and it doesn't affect the Weed Whacker Bowl games as much, where it's 66 against 56, because those are not generally games involving players that are looking at first or second round draft picks. But the top games, we're seeing it all the time. We saw it all through the pack this year. How many guys didn't play in the bowl games because of their professional you know, impending professional uh, jump. Make those 13 regular season games. Make those the 13th games. If for the SEC, guess what? You're not going to play nine conference games. For the PAC, it's going to be an extra non-con game. Mm -hmm. um, and that way, everybody plays nine and four. And you keep, obviously, I'm, I'm not an idiot here, you're keeping the Rose Bowl, the Fiesta Bowl, the Sugar Bowl, the Orange Bowl, the Cotton Bowl, the long, you know, top eight, whatever traditional bowl games that have lifespans that can live on their own 
um, forever. But you get rid of the idiotic bowl games that the television network created just to give themselves Christmas programming. All right, Michael, what do you think? Realistic? Well, I think the problem, you hit it at the end, Christmas programming. That's kind of the problem. That's They want to spread them out throughout the month of, throughout the week of December, the last week of December, first week of January. That's sort of the problem as far as the TV part goes. But I, I as you were discussing this, I, I was thinking, why don't some of those bowls move to Labor Day and get some of these interconference matchups with a sponsor on that are getting eyes on them anyway? So maybe, maybe the solution is to create a week somewhere in the season where you're doing interconference play a little bit and get that, get those sponsors to buy in and get the dollars in there. But I think the biggest problem is you have December 20th to Jan 1, which has been a, you know, a, a boondoggle for TV ratings and people watching these games and the Do only they, place. They really, yeah. The numbers are pretty good. Yeah. Really? See, I don't know any of them. Yep. <laughs> the, the numbers Yogi, are pretty good. I know good. one. Yogi, you watch. <laughs> not the stands. Not in the stands, but on TV, no, the I, numbers are pretty good. No, I mean, I look, was involved tangentially with the bowl game that's now, uh, it's now in Santa Clara, but it was in San Francisco for years. And I was involved, you know, just tangentially with it. And when it started, they told me point blank, you only need two things to have a bowl game. You need a title sponsor and you need an ESPN contract. That's it. Nothing else matters. There's not a ticket sold that matters to having a bowl game. How insane is that? And how is that helpful to college football? I don't think it's helpful at all, but that's just, that's just me. So. I think you might be able to shift some of those lower tiers that aren't getting quite the amount of numbers to a different time with a reason to watch, which would be an interconference type setup. And I, I think that, I think we may be onto something. I like it. All right. All right. So who are you going with title game? What do you got? Ted? Title game, Joe, Joe Burrow. And this is a, a magical ride. Not going not gonna to change. And I'll tell you what, what's surprising to me, maybe it's going to happen, um, is that I thought for sure that this young guy Brady at LSU would have a job by now. You know, given, the, given you know, my God, you know, it's the Sean McVay factor, right? You, you can diagram plays on Madden and it works on the grass or, the, or now the fake turf. All of a sudden you get a head coaching job. I'm glad he hasn't. I'd like to see, you know, I was, I was thinking about it earlier today, you know, and we just kind of talked about it, you know, moments ago of like maybe Sark goes to Mississippi State. I just think like Lane Kiffin as an example, I wish he started at Florida Atlantic versus the Raiders. Yeah. You know? So exactly. I, I hope for this guy, like that won't happen for him because he's going to be a rock star and he's going to get a big job, but it's almost like take your time, you know, and, and when you get it, like, be ready to crush it versus just survive. Do you know Brady? I've never met him. No, I've heard great things about him, though. Wait a minute, Michael, mark this down. This is the first coach under 40 that Yogi <laughs> Roth did not know. That's awesome. Yogi, I've known you how many years? It's the first time I've ever heard you say that. Oh, Guys, hold you. on. My, I don't know when I tweeted out LSU in a close thriller. My 67 followers are going to get that information out, so <laughs> I want to get out on the pod. Yeah. LSU in a close, thrilling game. Okay. Well, so what do you think, I'm going to go uh, my head, the storyteller in me. I want Joe Burrow, Coach O in Louisiana, New Orleans. I want him winning that thing. I hope Joe Burrow comes out with his name spelled with the X on it, like the E-U-X at the end, like he did 
in a yeah. senior night. But my gut says Clemson. My gut says Clemson. I, I, I know what it's like to have to go back-to-back undefeated seasons, how hard it is, and the confidence you generate. We saw what they did. Arguably, we could argue when they got, when they got hit in the face because that kind of happened, Trevor Lawrence, and he flipped his switch, so-called. Um, I, I, I don't know. That's my gut. So as, as a gut guy, I'm going to go with Clemson in an awesome game, but I will be happy with no matter what happens uh, as long as it's not a blowout either way. Yogi, it's history, so it's just, from this standpoint, fascinating, but you have the great perspective. If, capital letters, Edward Geron had been given the job at USC those years back, would he have succeeded there? Yeah, I think he would have. You know, you look back on it. I, I think he would have. I also think that him going through it, he went through it at SC. I was there that day covering on campus when he was told he wasn't the guy. He left. He didn't coach the bowl game. He didn't coach another practice. He was, and he talked about it. He just went home and he cried and he was angry and frustrated. I'm sure a bunch of emotions. Um, and I was there the, a couple hours later when they announced Sark being the head coach. But I, I, I don't, I think that probably going through that made him even better, right? Going through what he went through at LSU made him even better. Um, I do think that, that SC is different than every place in the country. I do think dealing with LA kids who come in with so much hype. And usually that hype is not mirrored by their reality in the buildings of Heritage Hall and the John McKay building. That's a challenge for any coach to manage. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that I do think he would have success. And I, I think he's I think he's really impressive, you know, and, and you got to tip your cap to what he's done. And he's he's kind of been in the game. He's seen so many experiences. You know, he went to I remember when he went to Ole Miss, I almost went there. Uh, they had a receiver coach opening when I was at SC. And it was the year he got fired. And, you know, he would often talk to our staff about, like, when he took the job, he tried to be Pete versus tried to be Ed. And I think guys just kind of learned that along the way. So, yeah, would SC begin the playoff? Maybe, you know. I think it's too generic to say one way or the other, but Ed Oral was a hell of a coach, and he deserves all the awards he's gotten. So, so speaking of, just before we leave, breaking news, because we always have one San Diego State game every year. Rocky Long has resigned, and Brady Hoke will be the head coach. So the question is, is Rocky Long the next D.C. at USC? Ooh. And if so, that is, that, that's what I would do. I mean, I know there's a lot of names up for it, um, but talk about immediate improvement. Talk about this guy's track record. He spoke at the USC clinic in the spring. I was there last year. He's got a great presence about him. We've talked to him. Uh, I think he's, he'd be perfect. I think his demeanor of like, you know, that disciplinarian that he is uh, would be awesome. Who knows if that happens, but to leave you guys with a little breaking news on the pod. Ooh. We need, I have Peter add some like da -da 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 music to that when you do yeah. that, Yogi. Okay. Yeah, done. You, I mean, Yogi, you think those are connected? Because that's, that's stunning. Brady, I mean, Rocky Long. Well, it was reported that he was in Syracuse interviewing for the D.C. job with Dino Babers earlier this week. Reported. Not confirming. No idea. And by the time people listen to this, and it'll already, whatever's done will be done. But it sounded as though he was going to make a move and wow. didn't want to shut it down entirely but not be the head coach. And, you know, Brady Hoke, I think that's interesting, too. Think of his run, right? It was a couple of years ago we were interviewing him as the D.C. of Oregon. You know, we're calling games up there. And look, Brady Hoke's the guy. I mean, we talked about it when we had the San Diego State-UCLA game this year. Brady Hoke's the guy that revived San Diego State football, brought Rocky Long in when Rocky had been fired in New Mexico, and then Brady Hoke got his chance at Michigan. But that's 
That's fascinating. And look, maybe Bayheim wants Syracuse younger than him. Maybe that's huh. the, the deal. Never bring anybody to Syracuse in January if you want them to stay. That's what I would say. I mean, Rocky Long is going to turn 70 in a couple of weeks to go to Syracuse. Wow, that would be interesting. You, you hit that. I mean, that would, to me, if I'm Chip Kelly, if I'm Clay Helton, if I'm Mike Leach, my gosh, you know, that, I'd be jumping on that, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, that, that, that's reportedly, you know, I'm just kind of online looking. It's like, is it Washington State? You know, is it somebody on the West Coast? This guy, he's going to elevate any program. I mean, if I'm, in, if I'm a sitting D coordinator, I'd be nervous. You know, he's, he's awesome. So we'll see. I don't know. I think, I think it'd be a great fit at SC, to be personally, perfectly honest. I hope well, that happens. Yeah, I'll tell you what it reminds me of, Yogi, and it's right where you are, but look at what, you know, McVeigh got a head coaching job at seven years old, and he's an offensive guy. And he admitted, I don't know anything about defense. I know how to beat defenses. That's what he did. What did he do? Hired Wade Phillips, right? 70 years old. Now he's moved on from Wade Phillips, but they had a terrific run together. And he just let Wade Phillips run the defense. That to yeah. me was a very smart for a young guy with minimal experience. That was an incredibly wise move to make. I would think there'd be another coach in our little world here that could do the same thing. That would say, hey, I'm just going to bring this guy. And you, defense is on you. Just make it work. Amen. Well, Look, fellas, this has been a blast for our listeners. You've got as much, you know, you're usually accustomed to 30 minute episodes. Well, you could take your time. You got about an hour and 12 minutes or so. Take your time, get through this in your off season, 10 minutes a day, whatever yeah. you want. Enjoy yourself. Let's watch some basketball. Let's do it every halftime of a Ted Molinari basketball game. And uh, we'll come back in the spring. We'll talk about the draft, talk about some teams. Yeah. All right. We'll Is Michael doing humanity here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We got to set him up. Like, and, and here comes our. <laughs> he, was getting, he was getting there. Don't worry. Molinari, thank you for your life. <laughs> right. And here comes the humanity moment of the year. So I think when we look back on seasons, especially when we look back on to two or three seasons back, we don't really remember the games or the plays, but we remember the stories and the stars. You know, one of the things we always say in TV is sell the stars. So. The last two seasons, we've had two quarterbacks in this conference who have been the stars, and they have one or two similarities, but they could probably not be any more different in Gardner Minshew and Justin Herbert. And it's been a pleasure two years ago with Gardner Minshew to kind of ride that story all the way through the season, and obviously Justin Herbert uh, put a bow on it at the Rose Bowl. So I just kind of want to do a little compare and contrast, but... First of all, the biggest similarity is they each made a decision. Uh, Gardner Minshew decided to come to Pullman and play instead of go to Alabama and coach. And obviously, Herbert made a decision to stay to come back for one more year. And what are the result? I mean, now Gardner Minshew is an unlikely, amazing story of NFL starter. Justin Herbert's a Rose Bowl winner and probably going to be in the top five draft choices. So, I mean, those are pretty pretty cool stories, a pretty cool uh, finishes, but I think the most interesting thing is how dissimilar they are. I mean, Gardner Minshew came from absolutely out of nowhere, where Herbert was the man going into the season. Everybody knew he was going to be the story. Just how are you going to tell his story, advance his story? Herbert grew up in the shadows of Autzen Stadium, dreaming to play for the Ducks. Minshew grew up in Mississippi, guarantee he had never heard of Pullman. And now, 
to refocus, Gardner Minshew is going to ride in an RV from Jacksonville, Florida to LA. I would imagine to refocus, Justin Herbert's going to ride his bike over to Dutch Brothers. And for one thing for sure, I know Justin Herbert does not own a pair of jorts. That I know for sure. So, And Yogi, I think Michael is tempted. I've heard him looking up flights to Amarillo. I think he wants to maybe jump down there, join Minshew halfway, right? <laughs> to join you in Venice and you know I'm sure I'm sure Minshew's got some Cougar gold stacked under one of those seats in the RV what do you think as long as Uncle Rico's riding shotgun <laughs> he definitely looks like he's enjoying himself on his ride and maybe he'll let us use the RV for the uh the spring tour Yogi see if we can hook that up <laughs> I'm, I'm in I'm gonna send him a text right now let's go brother hey, hey can I jump in and say one thing as we wrap up the season you know, you talk, Yogi, you were asking about programs before. and um, We know that Washington has changed, but I just think one of the most resounding moments I've seen around college football was 2014, first season as the head coach of Washington. Chris Peterson, midway through the year, dismisses Marcus Peters, a extraordinarily talented and equally mercurial player, first round draft pick, and he dismissed him from the team. And it was just the right, you know, and Chris being the who he is never went into detail publicly about it. But it was obvious it was his way of setting the tone for the way Washington football was going to operate. It did not harm Marcus Peters draft. His legacy has continued in the pros. He's been wildly talented and keeps bouncing from team to team for clear reasons. But what Chris Peterson established that day and that year carried through. We saw it for the six years, an astonishing establishment of the way we've all, I think, and Yogi, you played in the middle of it, of a way of, of, a, of a top shelf football program should be run. And so as it leaves into the hands of Jimmy Lake, I just think it, it, it's in the, in the decade of the 2010s, you know, what David Shaw did at Stanford, what, what Kyle has done at Utah have been extraordinary, but what Chris Peterson did what he walked into at Washington and then what he leaves behind. That's phenomenal. I huge, huge kudos to him for that. Cosign on every word you just said, man. Yeah. What a year. A lot has happened that we didn't project. Some has happened that we did project. Uh, but overall, fellas, it was a blast. I know our listeners really enjoyed it. The audience grew, almost doubled every week as we got going on this thing. And Thanks to I Bill Riley for that. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. Heck, can't do an interview in Salt Lake City without getting asked about Molinari now. So <laughs> it's a success. Uh, thank you, Bill. Yeah. I thank love you it. for your life. <laughs> the perfect way to end it. We appreciate all of you. Talk to you soon. Have an incredible start to the new year. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.